Hey guys, I come to you with a completely unplanned, unlocked bonus episode. And the sound quality won't be great. I'm not in my normal studio at all. But I had a really emotional day with the podcast yesterday. And if you follow me on Instagram, then you know why. I posted on the podcast account, which, you know, to be clear, I don't have thousands upon thousands of supporters on Instagram. I think I have maybe 1,500 followers, but that's 1,500 people. And so in my mind, when I can post something, sharing an important cause, something I believe in, sharing how I want to support equal rights for all in this country, in this world, I feel like that's a a pretty decent (laughs) uh, platform to do so, and I want to. So yesterday I shared that, unfortunately, a 16-year-old a transgender student in Oklahoma. Their name was Nex. Uh, you can find everything about the incident online. There's uh, wonderful news articles that have been written. Um, they unfortunately passed away after being attacked. I guess I legally should still say allegedly allegedly attacked uh, in the bathroom of, of their high school, um, apparently just for being transgender and had fought through a lot of prejudice uh, in their short life dealing with this. Uh, Oklahoma is one of 11 states in this country that have legislation on the books about bathroom access, and this incident happened in a bathroom. Now, this is being framed by many people, uh, many conservatives, as a student safety issue, but the data does not support that at all. Uh, Three quarters of transgender students across the country, that's 76%, uh, reported that they felt unsafe at school because of their gender and were also five times more likely to be threatened or attacked while at school than their peers. Uh, It doesn't sound like any safety is going on uh, for our transgender youth or really for any youth in our country, uh, given issues with gun laws as well. So yesterday I had a real pivot point uh, with my Uh, role as a podcaster and just as a historian, as an individual, as a parent, as a human, as a U.S. citizen, um, I won't be quiet in any way, shape, or form about who and what I support. And uh, podcasting is the Wild West. So I can, you know, say and do and support whatever I like. And yes, this podcast is about Titanic, but it's also about being a human being. And it's also about taking a stand for equality. And I cannot believe in the year of our Lord 2024 that I am controversial on Instagram. And yes, I lost followers yesterday for doing this. I can't believe in in the year 2024, it's controversial to support basic human rights. We're talking about just basic access to equality and not being harmed or killed while you're at school. Uh, That's in danger for not just transgender youth, but all of our youth across the country in many ways. Can't believe that's controversial, but here we are. So I I just realized, you know, I I haven't been doing enough to promote equality, to talk about issues, and this can be a platform to do that. And of course, I do often uh, lay bare my feelings and my beliefs, and that's why there are some very trollish uh, reviews in Apple Podcasts or this podcast, and I'm proud of those. They give me an adrenaline rush. Love it. Um, but I need to do more. And there are ways that I can tie that into the Titanic story, 
um, moving forward. And I'm going to, I vow to do a better job of that. I vow to spend the rest of the season covering not any more first class stories of passengers, but of second class, third class crew, uh, any uh, equality and uh, stories of, of prejudice, anything leaning in that direction so that we can tie this to uh, the scary time that we're in and the rights that are at risk in the United States. So this is a rambling way of saying thank you to the listeners who reached out. And there were many of you, dozens and dozens of you on Instagram yesterday that reached out to say thank you for posting this. Thank you for supporting trans rights. And I saw an uptick in Patreon membership. I saw an uptick in in listenership. And so what that told me was, just like anything in life, when you're true to yourself and you speak out with your heart, every everything will work out. Um, or you know, hopefully, eventually. Um, but it's it is rewarding to to do that and to see that yes, the support is there, the community is there. The Titanic community is by far uh, one of the most welcoming and loving and equality driven communities, especially on Instagram that I've I've encountered in my life. So I'm going to focus on the positive, and I want to thank every single one of you that reached out with words of support yesterday. I want to thank every single one of you who listens to the podcast. We have been doing this for three years now, guys, and I have met so many people from around the world, talked to many of you. I message with many of you. Patreon is growing. And also, oh, almost forgot. I want to let you know, uh, I will be donating a portion of Patreon's earnings this month to a transgender related charity. If you have any suggestions about what that should be, please send me a message or an email. Uh, that would be great. Uh, but yeah, here's an unlocked bonus episode because I woke up today and I thought, let's put something on the feed. This is a joy- more joyful topic about clothing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I just wanted to thank you all in some way with some content. Uh, you're the best listeners in the world. If you have a moment to jump down on Apple Podcasts and write a review to help balance out these troll reviews I'm getting for some things. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, no pressure if you're not able to, but if you are uh, very, very helpful. Um, always, you know, if you're loving the podcast, think about supporting um, at one of the tiers on Patreon. I have several tiers there. I'm a completely independent podcast. Uh, I'm an independent historian. I love doing what I do. And I thank you all again for everything. Uh, at the beginning of this bonus episode, as often as the case, you may hear a couple of things that are outdated. I think this one has a mention of a merch code that's not active anymore, unfortunately. Uh, but other than that, they, they, the unlocked bonus episodes seem to flow pretty well, even with a little outdated information at the beginning and the end. But enjoy, and I'll be back in your feed soon with an episode about the Syrian passengers on Titanic. I've long been been contemplating that episode, and it's been long overdue. All right. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I hope you're happy, healthy, and feeling safe wherever you are. And this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. I'm LA Beatles and enjoy an unlocked bonus episode uh, from this one's from like well over a year ago. I think <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them now. That's wild. Okay. Talk soon, you guys. 
Hello, and welcome to February's bonus episode. I want to really quickly remind you about something I haven't done a good job of mentioning uh, in the actual episodes. I did make a post about it a few weeks ago. I do have merch for sale via Bonfire. Some of you have already purchased which is amazing. But I do have a discount code for Patreon members only, and it is Billy Zane, all one word. Couldn't resist making that the promo code. Uh, But that takes 15% off the order on Bonfire, and essentially that covers shipping is what it sort of comes down to. So, you know, no pressure, but just wanted to let you know that that is there, and I hadn't done a good job of mentioning that on bonus episodes. So I'm going to jump right in. Funny thing is that there's been a lot of energy around this bonus episode over the last couple of weeks, just synchronicity wise. So I had decided a few weeks ago that I really wanted to dig in and finally do some research about Edwardian clothing, style, manners, customs. It is working alongside some research I'm doing for my live show at Mackinac Island at the Grand Hotel there in May as part of their Titanic weekend. And also just ties in with a lot of other episodes that I'm building up to. So I knew that I wanted this to be some kind of bonus episode soon. So I did the poll on Patreon and this one by a long shot. And then I received emails from two or three of you just in the last week about clothing on Titanic, questions about clothing. And I just thought, okay, perfect. And then uh, I decided to do an episode for the main feed very soon on Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon, and her husband, Sir Cosmo. That obviously ties in, and we'll talk a little bit about her in this episode, but way more on the main feed next week. So just a lot of energy around this. It feels like the right thing to be reading about right now and talking about. And this is a broad episode, and it's not defined in every part. Some of them are a little bit more polished. This one is a little bit not as polished, but there's a lot of great info. And this is definitely a representation of, like I said, the broad spectrum of research I'm doing right now on Edwardian customs and structure, food, um, clothing. I got an email from, I just want to shout out a specific email uh, from Katie, who is a Patreon member, which is the other day. And I want to give her some credit because as I was putting this bonus episode together, I was having a hard time working out themes and questions to sort of go back to, which as a historian, I always like to make sure I'm doing that in whatever bonus episode, regular episode, even when I'm just speaking off script. But a couple of questions that she asked really helped to solidify the theme for this bonus episode and how I would address it and how I would start assessing. So thank you. Um, The main two being about laundry and clothing on board Titanic, and then also uh, a question of uh, corset wearing, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute. But it really gave me some ideas about how to start assessing all of this, throwing spaghetti at the wall, so to speak. This episode is a lot of spaghetti. It's a really messy wall. After the notorious rigidity, truly, of the Victorian era, King Edward VII ushered in what many historians have called out as flair, less formal, more relaxed approach, things slowly starting to evolve socially, culturally uh, to (laughs) open up some of these um, 
rigid social customs and mores that there had been. The turn of the new century brought innovation, obviously, in science, technology, uh, in the in labor and the history of the working class. Uh, it also brought innovation and lots of designs and new things in Western style. And some of these designs to this day influence how we dress. And then some of them really flopped. And one in particular that we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Uh, This was a time, you know, on the edge, literal, figuratively. uh, Women wanted to experiment with new styles. Women were seeking new rights. Workers were seeking new rights. Class turmoil, questioning the class structure. This was all just over the horizon, already peeking out from the horizon. You know, it's it's so easy to fall into the trap of viewing, you know, turn into the 20th century, just automatically everything's modern, right? There's electricity, there's cars, we're headed to war, modernity, question, but it, that all happened slowly and all of the seeds of it were there in the Victorian era. And then the Edwardian era becomes this transitional period where a lot of this stuff is just is simmering like a pot waiting to boil. It's you know, really, truly a time on the edge. And I should go ahead and reveal three disclosures in terms of this episode. One, I will be focusing mostly on women's fashions, though there's a little men at the end, and what they wore, and possibly more to come on that in other episodes. I haven't had time to dig into that much yet. Uh, Two, privilege and class are the two huge elephants in the room here. Most of the fashion history I'll be discussing pertains to women in the upper classes, and sadly, that's a reflection of A, the availability of high fashion and nuance and shopping experiences were just an elite thing at this time, and B, most of the histories written focus on these women. So it's also a gap in the research and sources, which I really want to work to correct, and I could definitely foresee a completely different bonus episode or regular episode on the feed about third-class dress and clothing as well. And third, there is a look here at clothing in Britain and the U.S., not the whole world at this time. Obviously, that's a product of the subject at hand, the Edwardian period, named for the king in Britain. But obviously, too, there is a whole nother history to be written about how men and women dressed during this period all around the world. That is just not what's in my sort of view for this. So here we go. Edwardian era was from 1901 to 1910, technically, if you go by the reign of Edward, but it's often generally extended as a historical era to mean 1900 to the start of World War One, And that's always, as a historian, made sense to me. This was a time of political and social unrest, like I mentioned. And we won't have time to talk about all of this today, but it's so important to point out that the most significant change in this period, historians agree, and it's not talked about enough in terms of Titanic history, was the rise of the working class voice and working class movements. There is building at the time this sort of triple alliance of workers, miners, dock workers, and railway workers. And Ding, ding, ding. Obviously, dock workers are very important to the story of shipbuilding and Titanic. So they are joining forces to uh, form a labor movement. And labor history is its own beast. I really look forward to doing some episodes in the future 
on the main feed where I may find a way to work in some labor history into the building of Titanic, uh, some of the crew, things like that. It's definitely something that I would like to do. In this specific bonus episode, probably not a lot of time spent on that, but I just wanted to make sure the context was set. So in elite circles, though, the Edwardian age was known for its excesses, its elegance, its wild beauty, uh, you know, elegant with a touch of bohemia, but it's also still had strict social rules that were modeled by the wealthy. And the king himself is a good example of this. He hosts, is known to host these huge, just meals of gluttony, right? Like course one has four meats, course two has seven meats, and then a salad and a veggie, and then come back with some more meat, soup course, punch romaine. I mean, it's if you look at some of the menus, he is very much setting this example of decadence and, yeah, dare I say, gluttony. But it's strange because he also is, of course, sitting at this, the literal and metaphorical, you know, ahead of the table of keeping these very stringent class structures at place. And it's strange. And really, these descriptions seem at odds with one another, very schizophrenic to say those two things together. At first glance, the Edwardians sat atop of a perceived moral high ground, stilted, untouchable. However, as some historians have posited, and more and more recently, high society of the Edwardian era functioned because it actually put forward this outward appearance of propriety and correctness and stringent social class. And that was on purpose so that the lower orders, quote unquote, the poorer people would aspire to that life and would understand their place in this ladder, which of course their place was at the very bottom. So Imagine this weird transitional time where social mores are loosening. You have hyper-modernist dancers like Isadora Duncan slinking along party tables of the wealthy in not very many clothes. You have the bohemian crowd, you know, downing oysters and champagne in nightclubs. But you still have this very strict set of laws and unwritten laws governing the classes on the surface. And when push came to shove, these laws still prevailed among the wealthy who often joined forces and tight lips to protect their own. And to enact all those social guidelines and all the events they'd be known for, the wealthy had very codified dress, like literally codified in dressing manuals. For elite women in Britain and the U.S., this meant changing clothes a lot during the day. You, I'm going to be talking about the 97 movie a lot in this episode because it, the costume department on that film Oscar-winning, astounding, led by Deborah Scott and, and and including an entire team of people that brought all of this clothing to life. And they did a wonderful job of showing how many changes of clothes a woman would have been <laughs> put through during the day at this time in elite circles. So they're changing clothes a lot during the day, sometimes five or six times a day. Edwardians spent more money on their clothing than in any other era. In the morning, it was typically first into a blouse and a skirt, but it's not as simple as it sounds. While in part, this was a good thing because blouses were fashionable in a slightly more relaxed era in terms of style, and they were not body-hugging or tight corset-like 
A Victorian bodice had been fitted, but this was a move to a more flowing silhouette on a blouse. It was usually a white or cream tone in cotton, flannel, or silk, but they had high collars, and this is the butt, right? It's a movement towards looser, but here's the big butt. It's still incredibly detailed. There is high collar, usually, dainty cuffs, lace at the collarbone, multiple layers of pin tucking, lace inserts down the sleeves. So these were not simple garments. They were complex and detailed and expensive. Some of these blouses had an upwards of 15 buttons or hook closures, highlighting the common need among the upper classes for a lady's maid. It was as if the clothing itself employed these women, these ladies' maids, who spent hours of their day pulling women out of and pushing women into elaborate outfits. Paired with a wool skirt, at this point, the skirt would have been narrow and tailored. A more natural silhouette was on its way in. This was the outfit for breakfasting, general house duties, walking out into the garden, answering correspondence. Unfortunately, during this time, for most elite women, there wasn't a ton of substance to their daily routine. See 97 movie for good examples as well. But that was gradually changing across classes as more and more women began to read broadly, get an education, write, enter the workforce, discover the suffrage movement. Okay, so back to these Edwardian women that hadn't done all of that yet, though, really, or maybe only partially. They're still subscribed to these rituals. At noon, the Edwardian woman slipped into a dress that started to look remarkably different from Victorian bell shape. There was a shift in corset making, and we'll talk about corsets more in a minute, to exaggerate the bust and push the hips back to create this S shape. So the corset was on its way out, but for the moment, it still hung on in the first decade of the 20th century, just changing a little bit. Um, There was a movement here for ridiculous hats. These hats represented, everyone was aware, excess and status. They were huge. They got bigger and bigger. They were decorated, jewels, feathers, lace, whole birds, you name it. And this was not a new thing in the Edwardian era. If you look back at descriptions of you know, parties during the Gilded Age in New York, these hats and the, and the hats that would go along with costumes, especially. This is just a way that wealthy people show how much money they have, They that they can even decorate their hats. The 97 movie does a really good job of this as well. Everybody but Rose is in these hats all day. And that's how it would have been. Now, Rose, we only see in a hat in the boarding scene when she emerges in the beautiful purple and white striped outfit and the purple hat, which is stunning. But the reason that we don't see Rose and any hats the rest of the movie is the costumer had had Kate Winslet in a hat in the lunch scene, uh, the scene where she is sitting with Cal and Margaret Brown, Bruce Ismay, Thomas Andrews, and they are, it's like the sunlit room and they're ordering lunch. And then she gets up, leaves, and that's when Cal comes after her and Jack sees her from the deck below. Kate Winslet originally in a hat for that scene. 
And when James Cameron came on set and saw it, his reaction was, this isn't going to work. I cannot see my leading lady's face well enough. And that's not good. And apparently the costume designer said, no, but you want 100% accuracy. And these women would have been in these hats all day. And that is true. And James Cameron said, in basically, and I'm paraphrasing, I wasn't there. I've just read about this happening in a couple of books. Apparently said, basically... I don't care. This is not a concession I'm making. I have to be able to see her face for these scenes. So he just throws the hat over the side of the fake ship in Rosarito, Mexico, where they are filming. I love that story. But yes, if you look at the sort of possibility of 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 pointing out technical mistakes in the 97 movie, I would say that's probably one of them, but one that uh, James Cameron was very aware that he was making. Uh, one, uh, I'll interject with with the folly that I talked about earlier. One trend that happened during this time was something called the hobble skirt. And to me, this is absolutely hilarious, though, I, as you'll see, is some tragedy involved in this hobble skirt as well. This was inspired most likely by one of the first women to fly in an airplane. In 1908, there was a Wright Brothers demonstration in France, and a woman named Edith Ogilby Berg asked for a ride, and so she became the first American woman to fly as a passenger in an airplane. She was up there for two minutes and seven seconds. That's right. So she tied a rope around her skirt and her ankles to keep from blowing in the wind, and apparently this became sort of a famous moment. And inspired a French fashion designer to design a hobble skirt based on this. And then this just took off. It became popular as women were becoming more physically active. So I guess the impulse behind this is good, right? That maybe designing a skirt that is essentially binding you at the ankles would allow you to do activities and not have to worry about your modesty, right? A skirt opening or flying up. So I guess in a way, the motivations are good. This recognition that women are becoming more active, but it is it was essentially binding them, like really and truly binding them. There were actually two deaths recorded that were associated with the hobble skirt. One was a woman who was killed by a horse at a racetrack, I guess, because she couldn't get away. And then another one was on the Erie Canal Bridge. A woman was wearing a hobble skirt, fell over the railing and drowned because how in the world would you swim in that thing? So that part decidedly not funny. So they... There was this period, though, where women wore these, and even some streetcars, cab companies had to make adjustments to how women were seated on public transportation because of this and to help them, you know, get up and down or in and out. So, anyway, crazy. But it began to decline in popularity at the beginning of World War One. That's probably no coincidence. I think women realized, hey, we're we're in this thing. We're working more. We're out of the house more. Even if I'm wealthy, I'm not wearing this fucking skirt bound at my ankles. So that thing fell apart. Then at that point, after, 
And we talked about the breakfast outfit, an early day outfit, noon running errands outfit. In the evening, especially for younger women, there was a move at this time towards a tea gown in the early evening, which would be worn to sit and have an early evening tea and food with friends, family. It was a movement towards relaxing and having less restriction at home. These gowns were more comfortable. They had no corset. They were made of really soft fabrics, uh, looser, dainty, very ethereal. I uh, will try to find a good link to share uh, when I post this, but a lot of these gowns, these tea gowns, really still remind me of, you know, if a woman and I, <laughs> I kind of am like this in terms of my style. And when we decide to dress a little bohemian or a little ethereal or a little kind of quote unquote vintage these days in terms of dresses, I think as women, we still gravitate towards dresses like this, gauzy, ethereal, empire waist. I think you can still see the through line of these dresses even today. One of the women really responsible for this trend of these ethereal tea dresses and also a trend towards uh, more uh, beautiful and provocative lingerie, which will, I am not going to talk about that right now because I'm going to talk about it on a main feed episode next week. But Lucy Christiana, Lucille Lady Duff Gordon. Okay. So I will be taking a full look at her and her husband's life in a very long and complicated episode that's coming on the main food, main food. It's a bonus episode. I'm leaving it in on the main food. Now, on the main feed, uh, I was hoping for later this week, but it's probably going to be early next week. So I just will be speaking about her a little bit in this, but way more to come on her. She was a designer, renowned, you know, the scene in the 97 movie. It's really accurate when Rose is talking to Jack and telling him about the passengers. And she says, that's Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, designs the naughty lingerie, very popular among the royals. That's correct. Very popular among the elite women of New York and in Paris, Britain. She had a fashion column called Just a Word from Paris, her own newspaper column. She had this very distinct style with flowing diaphanous dresses, like I mentioned, and lace and pearls, broad-rimmed hats, chunky shoes. Again, does that sound familiar? I think as women, we still live with these trends today. So her style would become the signature, truly, of the Edwardian era for women. There was... Uh, this she used these Greek key and plume patterns, high empire waist, and then a loose hang below the bust. You see it in a lot of the dresses in the ninety seven movie. Deep necklines in a square or a V. There were these wide Art Nouveau headbands, a very soft and tousled look in the hair. The sort of birth of this kind of rolled out of bed look that again we still are very much influenced by today. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, since I just spotlighted that those types of dresses were really moving away from the corset silhouette and the tightening and the binding, I wanted to talk a minute about the corset and corset history. So 
Corsets have been around for many centuries, and really the main, you know, historical transition, right, especially among the elite, is from a corset into like a regular brassiere, a bra. So there is, I found out, a 600-year-old prototype of a bra, what we would more call just a bra, found that was found in a castle in Austria. That's proof, just like, you know, we always talk about this in terms of, uh, history is not necessarily linear. There's always lots of interesting side uh, bits of humanity happening here and there. So we cannot say, oh, the bra was not invented until the 1800s. Apparently it was. It just hadn't taken over in terms of um, cultural shift until much later. But the, the person credited with inventing the first quote-unquote modern bra was French designer Hermione Cadol. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who literally cut a corset into two in 1869. This was seen as scandalous scandalous at the time. Uh, (laughs) It really wasn't until 1914 when a woman named Mary Polly Phelps Jacob patented, 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 that's hard to say, what we know as the quote-unquote brassiere. This is the year that World War I broke out in Europe. She filed for the patent under the pseudonym Caress, Caress Crosby. And she'd come up with the concept while getting ready for a fancy dress ball, where she finally just realized like this corset is completely uncomfortable and restrictive. And she and her maid had sewn together two handkerchiefs to offer her breasts support. That's <laughs> such an interesting story. Uh, she sold her patent to the Warner Brothers Corset Company for just $1,500. Um, by the time the United States joined World War One, which would have been in 1917, as many of you probably know, the influence of European fashions kind of combined with the changing roles and dynamics of women in the workforce, these two things combined to just like the on mass like ditching of the corset even from elite life is finally kosher you know it's it has been building for many years and you know i mentioned that uh, patreon member katie had emailed me about corsets and 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 she asks a question specifically about corsets and feminism and i do think two things. One, I do think that we have as a society in social and cultural history and the history of fashion, we have ascribed, I think, in some ways, way too much meaning to corsets and binding. Now, of course, binding has played a role in fashion history in the Western and the Eastern world. Binding feet in the Eastern world. There's so many, uh, in Eastern and Western history, so many themes to talk about in terms of women and fashion and specifically in compressing and binding of the body. So I don't mean to skirt over that, pardon the pun. There's a lot more to talk about with that that I don't have time to go into here. But I do think in terms of of studying the history of the Western world, we have put a little bit too much stock into corsets defining women, right? You read all the time, uh, if you're reading anything in terms of, of... of history of this period. And you see it in the 97 movie when James Cameron films the Ruth tightening roses corset scene. 
we have this mental image of the tightening of a corset representing the tightening of of the sort of ropes around a woman's life and and her body and her choices in life and now that is certainly true that women prior to well into the 20th century did not have nearly as many rights as men and were in many ways, even in elite circles, in situations like Rose was in where she did not have a lot of control over her life. Obviously, very, very, very true. But I wonder sometimes if we have ascribed too much sort of um, of a, almost like a, almost like we've made the corset moral and bad. Whereas I think from what I've read, a lot of women liked it. You know, a lot of women felt very supported by it. It was part of their underwear. I mean, it would be like someone saying, don't, haven't you felt really restricted by your brassiere you've had your whole life? And like, maybe you like your bra. Like maybe you like the way it supports you and lifts you and makes you feel comfortable in your clothes. So I think it's one of those things where it was probably just a woman's preference. Some liked it, some didn't. I don't know that we can blame the corset for a lack of feminism prior to the feminism movement. I think it just tends to get sort of lumped in there with it. But the other thing I will say is that I do think in terms of a question of corset and feminism, they are linked in that very transitional period of the first couple of decades of the 20th century, like we've been talking about. Yes, I feel like the corset didn't necessarily represent oppression prior to sort of liberation. But I think once that sense of liberation is really happening as World War I approaches, as women enter the workforce, as suffragettes enter the scene, I do think it becomes this symbolic thing. It's similar to bra burning in the mid-20th century and women's liberation movements in that sense. So yeah, I think there's a lot to it. And I am sure that someone has done a research project on this. So if you know anything about a history of the corset or any great articles or any great podcasts, please, please let me know. So also going on at this time, you have the rise of department stores and the fashion industry in itself. Not necessarily fast fashion as we have now, but faster fashion, more ready to wear pieces, department stores where you can go in and you can shop and take something home. So two people on the Titanic that of course are just completely connected to the department store world, as most of you know, are Ida and Isidore Strauss. They had rented space in Rowland H. Macy's department store to sell crockery and glassware originally, eventually becoming co-owners of Macy's department store. Isidore apparently would wear pink carnations in his lapels while he worked and made the rounds when he was at Macy's. And he was known just to point out, as encouraging a compassionate and ethical working environment, which at this point in history, ding, 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 all the labor movements needed, was not necessarily a given. So Ida and Isidore Strauss, obviously connected to that. Uh, The Duff Gordons, also on board Titanic. And like I said, there's much more coming on them in a main theme episode very soon. 
Also on board Titanic, a passenger that I've always loved studying, and I really want to do an episode on her at some point as well, a woman named Edith Rosenbaum Russell, who would become in later years one of the really vocal survivors that you can see videos of from the 60s and 70s. But at the time, she was 32 years old, and she'd been in France. She was returning from France, and she was an independent woman. She was not married at 32, and she'd survived a lot of trauma in her life accidents, weather phenomenon. Uh, She had just a few months before been in a really bad automobile accident in France, where I believe uh, one of her suitors died. Uh, But she came from a kind of clothing background. Her father was a cloak and suit manufacturer. The company was called H. Rosenbaum and Sons. It was based in Cincinnati, Ohio. They sold furs, cloaks, coats, Cheviots, C-H-E-V-I-O-T-S. And that is not how I would have thought that was pronounced, but I did look it up on trusty old Google. So they made these Cheviot suits. They were made from Cheviot wool from sheep in Scotland. Actually, Veronica Hinky writes about this in her book. Uh, James Bond would go on to wear a Cheviot suit. <laughs> so these these suits don't go away. They're they're timeless and and still uh, sort of influencing men's fashion today. The Rosenbaum and Sons they were a full clothing making operation. Tailors. These were not middlemen. These were this was. This was clothing being made, and uh, she grew up in this environment. She went on to become a fashion reporter and a buyer. She was Paris-based, but worked for New York City-based clothing stores. She was also a correspondent for Women's Wear Daily. She boarded Titanic with 19 trunks, and she tells the story about locking each one with 19 keys the night of the sinking. She's also very well known because she had this little toy pig that her mom had given her as a little mascot, a little musical pig, and she carried it with her as a good luck charm. And when she was at the boats, she was scared to get in a lifeboat, and uh, she claimed that one of the crew members took it from her and said, oh, that fell in there. You better go get it because he was trying to convince her to get on board. And she figured that the pig meant so much to her mother and held so much good luck that if that had happened, she better follow the pig. So she survived and comforted children in Lifeboat 11. But apparently there are reports of this musical pig making noises that night that uh, people were not... (laughs) too fond of. Now, you can see Russell, like I said, in these videos of survivors from the 60s and the 70s. And she's in one of these interviews, she's in this big fur coat, I think I remember, which really reminiscent of this background she comes from. And fur coats would have been really common on board Titanic, by the way, for men and for women. So another question I got was about laundry and clothing actually on board Titanic. So this is a little bit of a mystery, but there, even among Titanic historians, there's no proof that there was any full laundry operation on Titanic. So on F-deck plans, you can see a room marked boiled linen. So, and there's also a room marked drying room. So it could have been that laundry was like boiled in these big vats like it sometimes was at the time, or maybe boiled then like hand wrung out. Uh, There was no evidence of any actual washing machines on Titanic. There is no central laundry system. There probably was 
um, a system in place to replace soiled linens or extra linens on board. And like I said, there is this boiled linen room. So there may have been some area to sort of triage and work on some items during the voyage. But for the most part, these shipping companies waited until they got into a port of call to do laundry at a larger scale of all of these linens coming. Uh, so in terms of clothes on board, it would have been a really common practice at the time to wash clothes and linens in uh, like a bathtub or used bath water. And this is a really common practice in third class and even among elite and first class. Of course, their lady's maid or their butler or valet would have been in charge of these tasks and and making them happen. An elite person wouldn't have been, you know, elbows deep in a bathtub. But in terms of clothing on board, there was uh, pressing, you know, ironing available and shoe shining available on board, but there was no laundry service aboard, historians don't believe. And so if someone was on board and needed a little troubleshooting, oh, I got a stain on a sleeve, that probably was happening in a sink, in a bathtub. Uh, there was no, you know, we think of like sending our cleaning out these days. That wasn't going on on board Titanic. And there was no fresh water that was dedicated to washing. And so that's another piece of evidence historians use to prove that there likely wasn't really a laundry facility on Titanic. I also get a lot of questions about what stewardesses wore on Titanic. I don't know why people ask stewardess and not steward, but uh, they, as you can see in the 97 movie, they're wearing very functional uniforms. They were very common uniforms for housekeepers, housemaids, nurses, and a lot of outfitters stores you know sold ready to wear items like this that could then embody any of these roles that women were working under so the basic outfit was a very dark colored dress super sturdy something that could be starched something that could be worn many times before washing and then collars and cuffs were bought as multiples and could be replaced. So you would have a clean collar and a clean apron and a clean cuff. And you can see this in the 97 movie with Rose's maid, Trudy, that she has like the white apron. And that part would have been like laundered and replaced, or maybe she had several sets of that, but the actual black dress would have been what she wore every day. Um, and similar with the men, with with male crew, that their suit would be something dark colored and very sturdy. And then they would have you know, different underwear, different shirts that they would own multiples of and, um, and replace along the way. So men, I do want to touch on men for just a minute. Obviously, in the lower classes, most men are dressing for manual labor. But if you were an elite male that was not in that set of people, which were the majority. So again, we're talking about the minority and we're talking about privilege here in terms of, of the people on Titanic and especially in first class. But they generally, these men in first class, were three-piece suits. So a jacket, a trouser, and a waistcoat or vest with these really high round-collared white shirts and neckties, of course, and then a derby or bowler hat. The bowler hat was the epitome of style in 1912 for men. It would be used in comedy by Charlie Chaplin a few years later, of course, and then it would become associated more with the working class. Uh, for the movie in 97, or I guess in 96 when they were on the set, the costume crew actually found 500 vintage bowler hats from the United States. 
States and England to use in the movie. Men like Cal in the movie that were wealthy, men liked to dress. I mean, I talked about this in the Archibald Butt episode on the main feed, but there are descriptions of his clothing because he was such a public figure. And of course, he was on a passed away um, in first class on Titanic. He, when he boarded for his European sojourn in 1912, he was in a purple suit. I mean, men loved to dress up. The Cal character in the 97 movie is a really great example of this. Accessories for morning, daytime, evening. They had beards that they had to maintain, or if they were clean shaven, then that took a lot of maintenance. There was there were mustaches that were very popular at the time, and of course, that took a lot of maintenance as well. There was this sense uh, when they were filming the 97 movie. I read this interview with Deborah Scott, again, the costumer, that you know, for the men they were dressing, for the male characters, there's was this accessory, quote unquote, hell, she called it. Uh, you know, men wore shirts that were buttoned up the back. They had collar buttons, tie pins, cufflinks, watches, chains, gloves, hats, walking sticks. Uh, Billy Zane in an interview called Cal a fashion Clydesdale whore. So there you go. And I did want to pinpoint one Titanic survivor who's male who does have some connections to some themes of clothing. And it's a really interesting story. So with this man that was on board named Baron Alfred von Drachstedt, but that was not his real name at all. He later became known as Alfred Nurney, N-O-U-R-N-E-Y, and that was likely his real name. He was 20 years old at the time of Titanic, a race car and airplane enthusiast, he said, from Germany. He was traveling under this false name. He was giving this story of, I'm, you know, headed to America to reset my life. I'm, you know, this wealthy baron on this new adventure. He boarded in second class, but apparently complained about his room and and begged that he be transferred to first class because he was a baron and must have been some mistake that he ended up in second class. Apparently on the Carpathia, he rested on a pile of blankets that were supposed to be distributed to all the survivors. A woman entered the room, pulled the uppermost blanket, making him fall onto the floor, and everyone applauded that woman. So I don't know the man. I can't say too much about him, but from what I've read, he just wasn't maybe the most considerate gentleman, it doesn't uh, seem like. Um, But he, uh, yeah, there's a lot of questions, a lot of questions around him. And that would be really interesting episodes. I've got to work to try to find more on him. But the reason I bring him up is he bought all new clothing for the voyage. And after the sinking, he wrote a letter to an insurance agent and to the White Star Line, demanding he be reimbursed for all the clothing that he lost. He said it was valued at $2,500 at the time, $55,000 in today's money. And here's just a portion of what he claimed was on board Titanic. Eight business suits, two tuxedos, four overcoats, a theater coat, a paddock coat, Oh, two padded coats, ulster coat, 20 evening shirts, uh, 15 night shirts, 40 collars, 10 sets of underwear, 40 pairs of socks, two pairs of tennis shoes, 14 pairs of boots, 125 ties, aviator coat with skunk collar, okay, uh, two pairs of leather leggings, there you go, uh, bowler hat, 
10 pairs of gloves. And this isn't even everything. That's just like a little portion of what he claimed. So there's the, the finery, the, the fakery finery of the false baron. There we go. It's going for some alliteration there. Also, I wanted to say kids' clothing. Whole nother thing here. Now, during this era, you know, babies would have worn like rompers and gowns. But once a child got to, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, they were just wearing like little miniature versions of adult outfits. Um, girls might wear a pinafore. Boys might wear, uh, you know, little jackets. But for the most part, it was really just kind of a, a pared down version of adult styles at this point. If you look at children's clothing in this era, it's just exactly what you would expect. A lot of high collars, a lot of kind of flounce uh, to the girls' dresses, a lot of knee socks, um, a lot of chunky Mary Jane style shoes. It's pretty predictable. But there's, you know, there's a lot of research that could be done there. I haven't done it. Full disclosure, I am doing an episode on the main feed um, later this week about children on the Titanic. So maybe I'll have a few minutes to jump into that there. I'm just not sure. So I just wanted to end by saying, you know, the 97 movie is really the place to go to get a sense of what these what these outfits looked like and what the clothing experience looked like. When working on the film, Deborah Scott ran a crew of hundreds that had a costume warehouse and they salvaged old dresses from trunks, from vintage stores, from estate sales. They found everything they could that was actually real and legitimate. And if they were stained or damaged, they would take parts from those dresses or those suits and put them on new ones. So the wardrobe department was this great combination of old and new. Um, They really wanted to emphasize color. And this is so true, but they found that most people associate the early 1900s as very gray or sepia toned, but that no, people were wearing color. Men were in pink and purple and blues. Women were wearing bright yellows, bright purples. Uh, Rose's outfits, I think, are the epitome of what would have been in style at the moment. Her character has just come back from this epic shopping journey in Paris to get clothes for her wedding, to get clothes for her new life with Cal. And so what she's wearing is very representative. And and two, what Ruth is wearing often is a little bit more Victorian. She, If you look at her silhouette and how they dress Ruth, she's sort of the older and Rose is in this new silhouette, especially the sinking dress, looser, no corset, flowing, diaphanous. And so Rose really represents the new and Ruth, the old. And I think that's beautifully done. Also, Madeline Astor and some of the other women that are featured, like Countess of Rothes, they are in these dresses that would have come straight from Lucille Lady Dove Gordon, who was on board. And so you get to see that. Um, okay. What else? What else? Uh, the next... Q&A live stream that I'm going to do as part of the Patreon experience. I think this is going to be the theme, like clothing, style, manners, customs. So if you get 
you know, wild hair and have another question or an idea, like write it down or comment on this when I post it and let's remember it for the live stream, uh, which will be coming up in March. A couple of recommendations on this subject in the meantime, there is a podcast called Dressed that goes into a lot of as you probably guessed in the name, fashion history, and it's really great. And as some of you who messaged me pointed out, I mean, fashion history is its own discipline. It is a rich history. There's so much that can be studied thematically that tells us so much about labor history, economic history. I think that... uh, I this won't be the last time I delve into this part of the Titanic story. There's a lot more to be done. Uh, let's see what else. If you have any books to recommend or articles or podcasts, please let me know. Um, I did want to say a Patreon specific sort of thing. I this is going to come off as some sort of humble brag. And I'm sorry if it does, but it's just the truth. It's not. I don't, it, I don't mean it that way. Um, so my correspondence um, in terms of the pod is I'm I'm so in the weeds. So I am. I get a lot of emails uh, on just like my regular unsinkable email every day. I get a lot of Instagram messages every day, which is wonderful amazing. I'm not complaining, but I am a one woman show. And in the future, I really hope to be able to hire like a part-time kind of assistant producer or social media manager or, or, you know, someone to help with some of these tasks. I'm just not quite at that point yet. As a one woman show, and I'm also researching and writing and producing and editing all of this, I is very hard for me to keep up with all of this correspondence in real time. So That being said, if you are a Patreon member, you are paying to support the pod and you are a priority. So if you need to get in touch with me, if you want to message me, do it here. If it is something that is important or time sensitive, please message me here. I will always prioritize Patreon messages uh, in real time because you guys are physically supporting the pod and I so appreciate it. Uh, So welcome new Patreon members. If this is your first bonus episode, uh, comment, message, uh, let me know any feedback. And in the meantime... I'll see you on the on the main feed uh, for some stuff uh, later this week and into next week that uh, will complement this bonus episode very well. Thank you again. I hope you're having a fantastic week and uh, talk soon. Bye, guys.